Hello, everybody. Glenn here at the top of the show with a call to action. When we started Clay Temple Media three years ago now, 2017, and at any rate, I guess that was three years ago, we were not really sure that anyone would be interested. And in fact, Brandon said something along the lines of, this is a show that 30 people will want to listen to and we're two of them. We have been really surprised and, and really lucky to have such a robust listenership, a, a lively forum, and extraordinarily generous Patreon support. And we've grown our audience across the network to a little over a thousand listeners to each of our shows. But this year, 2020, we would really like to grow that audience even more. In fact, we've got our eye on doubling that number in order to keep our podcast going for the long term. Now, we're doing some things on our end. There's going to be at least one new show this year, and we are even looking at advertising in some SF magazines. But we'd like your help, too. And we're going to incentivize that, of course. And what we would like you to do is review our podcasts. The more reviews we have, the more likely then we are to show up in a, a search on some kind of podcast app and to be recommended to people browsing that app for a new podcast. I mean, we think Elder Sign is at least the 10th best podcast that discusses HP Lovecraft. But if you search for Lovecraft in Apple Podcasts, we will never show up because we just don't have enough reviews. And we'd like to change that. And we'd like to change that for all of our shows. So, all right, what are you going to get in return for writing reviews, which we know is a task that no one actually wants to do? Well, we're going to give away some prizes. We're going to give away three prizes. In fact, one of them is a free bonus episode on a story or a topic of your choice. The second one is going to be a free nomination on an upcoming Patreon vote. I mean, even if you aren't a Patreon supporter, you can still nominate something to a vote. And the other option here is going to be a free trade paperback book inscribed by us, dedicated to you, thanking you for your help. And the first winner gets to choose and so on. On top of all of that, on top of those three individual prizes, we're going to do something for everybody, which is that if we get to 100 reviews on any of our five or six shows during this period, we will do a bonus episode of that show. So potentially five bonus episodes coming your way this summer. We're going to run this bumper here in February, also in March, and then again in April. You're going to get real sick of hearing it. And then in early May, as soon as my grades are in, I'm going to draw some names from a hat and pick three winners. And the way you get your name in the hat, this metaphorical internet hat, of course, you get your name in the hat for each review that you write. So if you review each of our five shows on the app you use, that's five entries in the hat. And if you go wild and review each of the shows on apps you don't even use, you can get even more entries. So the more you do, the more reviews you write, the greater your chances of winning are. And then you can just let us know by the end of April how many entries you get. You can send us a screenshot or just make a list, whatever you'd prefer. Uh, you can do that at our email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. Or you can message us on Patreon if you're a Patreon supporter. Or you can message us on Twitter. I mean, we're, we're findable, right? If you know how to use the internet, we're findable is what I'm saying. Uh, and by the way, if you have already written a review, and, and many of you have, and thank you so much for that, obviously, we're going to count that here in terms of getting your name in the hat and towards that 100 review goal. And so then we'll do the drawing. And if you're one of the three winners, we'll be in touch with you about that. And we're very excited to work with someone on crafting a, a special bonus episode. Those special bonus episodes, those commissioned episodes, that is really one of our favorite things to do because it, it lets us work together with a, a listener in, in coming up with ideas for shows to do. And then we're going to do this all over again later this year to encourage some social media sharing. But that is for another long and, uh, I'm sorry, tedious bumper uh, in the future. But all right, you are all awesome for helping us out. We really do appreciate it. 
But now let's actually get to the show that you came here to listen to. Welcome back to the Gene Wolfe Literary Podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. This episode, we are concluding the novella for lesson. And then next time we'll do our discussion episode. But before we get into that, we want to say a huge thanks to everyone who has been helping to spread the word about this show and the, the others that we do on the network when we started for lesson, we had asked people to, to give us a signal boost about hanging out with the Dream King, and a lot of you did, and it was a huge help. We're tremendously grateful for it, so thank you. We left off last time with for lesson, returning home for lunch, having a really disappointing and sad, heartbreaking experience with his wife, who he barely knows anymore, and her basically ushering him back out the door because that's where she likes him best. And he's on his way back to work for the second half of his day. Right. After a disappointing lunch at home, we'll recall that Forlesson didn't get to have sex with his wife. The food was terrible, and they both realized that they feel absolutely purposeless. Uh, so after this disappointing lunch, it is time to go back to work. And Forlesson wonders if he really has to. He, he wonders if the police would come after him if he just decided not to go back to model pattern products. And he thinks the answer is probably yes, but he also thinks that nothing the police could do would be worse than going back to MPP itself. And this is a real bleak outlook and a, a real deep feeling of despair that is just heartbreaking, this idea that that going to jail would be better than going to work. And, and maybe it's all the more heartbreaking because I think we've all felt this way about a job at some point, this feeling that maybe I'd rather be in jail or living in a tent and trapping squirrels than going to this prison of a job for even just one more day. And we should say one more thing about for lessons drive back to work before we, we see how he's going to spend his afternoon. And, and that is that he sees Abraham Beale's hat. Uh, Abraham Beale was the hitchhiker from the first episode. Uh, for lessons sees his hat in the road, which seems like not a good sign and maybe also a metaphor for something. As he parks his car for lesson notices that there have been some changes uh, to the place where he works. Uh, some of the cars seem shinier and an outbuilding has been torn down. And when he gets to his desk, there's a boy there waiting for him. And he says his name is George Howe and that he now works in for lessons section. So not a boy in any legal sense, but a young man who looks like a boy to the aging for lesson. And we're recording this just about two weeks before the school year starts again. And I will be faced with exactly this feeling for a few days before I uh, suck it up and remember that, you know, I've had a good life and I was young once, too. So this was a passage that really resonated with me. So, all right, there's, uh, there's been some other changes since this morning, too. Miss Fawn is no longer Miss Fawn, but is now Mrs. Frost, though Forlesson is going to carry on thinking of her as Miss Fawn, which is perhaps a confusing bit of wolfishness in the, the way that he narrates this story. On, on top of this, Mr. Fields has died, which comes as a shock to Forlesson because Fields wasn't much older than him. And he also learns that Fields has been cremated and placed into a, a vault here at the company, and Miss Vaughn explains that this is a company benefit that for, for Lesson also can take advantage of. But he says he'd rather be buried at home than here in this job that he hates. And Miss Vaughn says that he looks like the type who would prefer that. And it's clear that she doesn't like that type. And even though for Lesson himself only just started this morning and still hasn't actually figured out what his job is, it is now time for him to be the one giving company orientations to the new employees. And right now he's supposed to be meeting with Gordy Hilbert. So even though we'll have a full discussion episode next time, I think it's probably worth pausing here to talk about what this scene is telling us about the, the speculative fictionness of the story and the way that time is, is happening. 
Yeah, we can start with the speculativeness of the world here, but there, there are a few. But there are also like a few symbolic ties happening in this brief section as well. You know, we see the next generation of workers coming in, and their names all have the initials GH. So we are now officially dealing with these ink incremental iterations in naming that seem to signify a, a generational passage of time. Obviously, we know that there were people before the AB generation, um, but they were unnamed or just a father. We don't know anything more about them or where they came from. Adam Bean built the company and he's dead. Uh, the CDs are all gone by the time Emmanuel Forlesson shows up as a young man. And he primarily only works with EF. So so we're at the point where we can imagine that maybe the whole of life is compacted into a single work day. And that is what Emmanuel Forlesson is experiencing. And the fact that Ed Fields has died maybe signifies that Forlesson's day too is coming to an end. Right. He's biologically aging at a sort of normal rate, but over the course of this single day. So this single day is going to be his entire life. So at this point, he's actually lived the majority of his life. And so far, none of it has been good. He's not enjoyed any of it or gotten any pleasure or meaning or joy from it. And it doesn't really look like he's going to, but we'll see what the afternoon holds for him. Yeah, I'm optimistic. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I do, though, find it pretty grim that being burned out by work and cremated in your office, uh, and then that's totally by the result of not attending to your human needs like exercise or good diet or fitness of any time, uh, is somehow seen as a company benefit. And I'm glad you pointed out that Miss Fawn or Mrs. Frost sort of implies and is a little condescending about about the fact that maybe being buried at home is 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 not the greatest look for a person like you want to seem loyal enough to be killed, like die of a heart attack at your desk uh, because loyalty to the company is really the highest form of self-fulfillment that you can really have and it's just such a an awful attitude it's grim as i said this is an attitude though that that's pervasive in our work culture. This idea that the the thing that you do, the tasks that you perform in exchange for money that you're going to use to pay for shelter and and food and hopefully some luxuries and some some comforts for you and your family, has to by you be treated at least publicly as the end all be all of your your life. It has to actually be more important to you. You have to act as if it's more important to you than the thing that you're actually going to the job for to begin with. It has to be more important to you than your family or any other aspects of your community. You have to treat your job like it's a some sort of holy mission, like that this and that the, the, the company is your church in some way. And this is pervasive in our culture. It really is. And so far nobody's really found a cure for that. Uh but there are some good books worth reading that help explain it a little better. And and this story is really rooted in some of those discourses. I also want to talk about Abraham Beale's hat. We saw in the last section that Forlesson is so deprived of time with his family and so crushed by the meaninglessness of his daily activities that he's just stopped being curious. He's gone back to sleep. He, he no longer thinks he has the time to stop and examine the world or even to pitch up, pick up a hitchhiker or even see if there is a hitchhiker. 
he's really just become the type of man who is only focused on coming to and returning from work. And he's so caught up in his personal drama that's associated with those things that there isn't room for anything else. And it's just an awful realization for him. And this symbol of Abraham Beale's hat, whether he's dead or he's been a ghost all along, uh, is connected in some way to the use of the expression bought the farm that Miss Fawn uh, slash Mrs. Frost uses. Of course, we all know that this is a way of referring to someone dying, as in Ed Fields bought the farm, but it's also Abraham Beale's origin story. The government bought his farm to make a highway. I'm not quite sure what to make of this connection yet or what Wolf is really saying, but I think we'll have to dig into it in the discussion, whether Wolf is really looking at the government's activities as a, as a death sentence for all people who live beneath the government. And I think that's going to be a really fascinating question, and, and we can extrapolate that to, to even be thinking about the the place of government, the place of the state in this society that we see here in, in this story, because it really only shows up in Abraham Beale's own account of his backstory, and otherwise, that just doesn't exist. This company seems to really be the the highest authority, although we can think about the, the policemen as well. So that, that'll be a really fun aspect of the discussion. I'm looking forward to trying to suss some of these things out and dig into it. Well, later on, Forlesson is notified that he's being transferred to another department, and on his way to his new desk, he, he goes through the main lobby where he notices that there's actually an image of Abraham Beale, the hitchhiker, but the image is labeled as Adam Bean, the, the founder of the company, and nothing further comes of this, right? But I imagine that we'll want to spend some time on this as well in the discussion, but what really matters to this scene is that Forlesson meets his new boss, Mr. Fleer, who speaks entirely in skiing metaphors, which I did not anticipate that being the next level of metaphors. And Fleer explains that this division is in the middle of a very successful crash program to develop a hard-nosed understanding of the ins and outs of the real, realistic business world with particular emphasis on marketing, finance, corporate developmental strategy, and risk appreciation. So just more meaningless here, right? That is uh, too many things to be a particular emphasis, right? Uh, and he also says that they've been playing a lot of Bet Your Life, the management managing real life pseudo game. And Forlesson is going to get in on this. He's going to fill in for Fuchs in this game. And Fuchs is in an interesting position because he's heavily committed to a line of plastic toys. But he also has some military contracts for field rations and biological weapons. And he's also big in aquarium supplies. And if this is not a knock on what corporate holding companies do, uh, I don't know what is. Yeah, and if you haven't listened to our episode of our our episodes covering the hour of trust or, or read that story. That's basically the whole theme of that story is an attack on these conglomerations that don't have any particular focus and are just trying to make a profit any way they can for lesson here makes a joke about, you know, living in the age of aquariums, which is obviously a reference to the age of Aquarius. And that's associated with like the hippie movement and expanded consciousness and nonconformity and rebellion. And, all the stuff that was like the whole point of the hippie movement to push back against the government, uh, the government's overreach maybe in Vietnam or, or into the personal lives of citizens in the country. And that has led to this sort of rank corporatism that is absolutely controlling people's lives in a way that the government in America has never, ever been able to accomplish. You know, but 
This joke is also made in the context of Forlesson finally just digging in and accepting his life at Model Pattern Products. We're told he's excited to play the game and he's okay now speaking in these meaningless metaphors. It's automatic for him. And we see that the Forlesson that we met at the beginning of the story has been whittled away into this person who just plays ball. Yeah, we're going to see that manifest itself here in this game of Bet Your Life, the management managing real life pseudo game. And uh, let's go play that now. So this game is played on a very large board on a very large table in a very large meeting room. And when Forlesson gets there, there are several players scattered around the room. Two of them are arguing, one is asleep, and five others are studying the board and making notes and calculations. Fleer can't stick around, so he just gives Forlesson the rule book and then checks on his own game before he heads out to a, a meeting. And Fleer's move in this game is is cryptic. This is this is what he writes down on a on a game sheet. Bid 17, ask 18 and a quarter, snowmobiles, five and a half, up half, open new territory, shut down coal oil shoes, Fleer. Kind of meaningless. What is this game, right? So two of the men take an interest in the new player for lesson, right? And uh, explain that the rule book will actually only confuse him and that the basic principle of the, the game is that no one has to move, but that anyone can move at any time if he wants to. And as an example, he explains that Fleer hasn't been in the game in 10 hours, but now he's come in and he's moved. But he says that in contrast, this part of the building is always open, like it's 24 hours a day, and there's coffee and sandwiches that are brought in at every hour around the clock. And so some people just never leave. They're always playing this pseudo game. And there is also a way for the, the players themselves to change the rules, but that requires a quorum of three quarters of the players present, but never seven or less, which hardly ever happens so it's possible for people to change the rules but structurally it just doesn't ever actually happen so for lesson looks over the holdings that he has and he makes a move in the the same way that Fleer did and the other players seem to think it was a dumb move and for lesson then at this point decides well maybe he should read the rule book and and when he opens it to a random page and what he finds is some text from the very story that we ourselves are reading and in particular it's an excerpt from the conversation that he had with fields during his orientation just earlier in the day. And we don't get any reaction to this from Forlesson, though it, it would certainly freak me out to open up a book and hear about my morning <laughs> in that book, uh, because one of the other players is interested in Forlesson's move. And then the coffee and the sandwiches arrive, and Forlesson just steps out into the, the hallway, gets out of this room, and Wolf gives us a really awesome description of the the game room and the the corridor. It's a description that I think rivals one of his landscape descriptions, except for, you know, the part where I would never actually want to be in this place the way that I would want to be in St. Croix and St. Anne and so forth. And Wolf writes this. There had been a feeling of airlessness in the game room, an atmosphere compounded of stale sweat and smoke and the cold, oily coffee left to stagnate in the bottom of paper hot cups. The corridor was glacial by comparison, filled with quiet wind and the memory of ice. Now here, Forlesson has a, a brief conversation as well with one of the other players. And when that player heads back into the game, Forlesson just walks away. He, he decides that even though he's probably supposed to be playing this pseudo game, he's just not going to. Yeah, this whole notion of something being a pseudo game is, is kind of nuts, right? I mean, what what makes it a pseudo game? It's a game that people are playing does it have real world impacts and that's what makes it a pseudo game that people are playing a game and not realizing 
what effect they're having on the broader world and maybe they're not meant to understand the impact i mean it's just a it's just a bizarre notion i'm really glad you read that description that wolf writes about basically a conference room with stale air we've all been in environments like that and it is absolutely as wolf describes it is suffocating and you want to get out of there the second you realize that you're in that environment you have to step outside there's like a weird enchantment that overtake spaces like that and the second it's broken you can never go back to them and i think wolf is describing that so perfectly this bit about the brown rule book too is crazy i mean i wonder if it's just meant to suggest that there are layers of the games being played here as i as i as i said again i think we're dealing with on some level with this with this ions chain of representation the world that for lesson lives in may just be a, a representation of some ideal or, or some understanding of life and, and is designed to represent that the same way the board game is a representation further down the chain of ion of management culture. And you know we'll have some textual evidence that suggests that this could be the case at, at the end of the story. Right. For now, for lesson, just wanders for a little while until he sees a young woman who is not Miss Fawn, but looks an awful lot like her. And he assumes that she can direct him to his, his new division. And it turns out that she's actually Miss Fawn's cousin, Miss Fed. And on top of that, for lesson, recognizes her voice because she used to work in traffic. It's a, a capital T proper noun here, traffic. And so she was the voice that was talking to him in his car this morning when he stopped to look at the, the shadows. And I think we all assumed that that was a, a computer, but it turned out that was a real person the whole time. It, it was this person, Miss Fed. And Forlesson mentions that he was the guy who got out of his car, and she says that actually a lot of them do that, but usually only once. And here Miss Fed notices that Forlesson is carrying something. It's, it's the rule book for, for Bet Your Life, and he says he's afraid to read the ending of it. And it, it seems that he realizes that the, the rule book is his biography and he's saying he's afraid of death or, or at least he doesn't want to know about his death, doesn't want to know when and how he's going to die and, and so on. But Miss Fed says that it's actually the red book that people are supposed to be afraid to, to read. And this is that religious book that we encountered at the, the beginning of the, the first section. And Miss Fed goes on to say that the red book is the opposite of mystery, but that everyone stops reading before the, the end. And she also says that they aren't supposed to talk about books at work, even when they don't have anything to do. And this raises some questions for me, and I think has something of a relationship with Edna for lesson not being able to read at home because of how nervous she is as well. And so this is something I'm looking forward to talking about in the discussion. Yeah, this line about not being able to read at work makes me so upset because of how of how true it is. I mean, it's absolutely crazy that if you have downtime, why not just better yourself in some broader capacity. You never know how different kinds of knowledge can interact, um, not just to make you better at your job, but to make you a more empathetic person, to enjoy life a little bit more, to get a little bit more out of your day other than just looking busy or being productive, to have some real free time. And it seems that even in Wolf's time working in offices, bringing a book to work seems like to have been frowned upon. It's crazy. But in this story, I think it's still connected to the types of knowledge that you're supposed to demonstrate in the workplace in order to seem on task and professional. And and we've seen that these different sorts of appropriate knowledge and demonstrating them have come up a few times in this book already. And it's really anti-knowledge that people seem to be after. 
Um, this world building note about Miss Fed is something we will talk about in the discussion. But this is the second time, you know, in a really short span of the story where the physical appearance of someone in a, in a given iteration is identical or nearly identical to someone else. And this is something I think we'll want to keep in mind because we've seen this sort of identity recognition come up before. Yeah, there's a definite sense that, that all of the people performing similar functions actually just kind of look like each other, that there's just not that much that distinguishes one person from another. And, you know, maybe not being allowed to talk about books at work might be a big part of, of that, why people are indistinguishable, why they have no sense of self, no actual persona that can make them a, a unique individual, make them a real person. And at, at this point, the conversation turns because Miss Fed's actually been looking for for lesson. It turns out that Mr. Frick needs him for something, uh, something that he was planning to do at the end of the day, but which needs to be bumped up because, you know, Frick needs to leave early so he can play golf before going home. And we've heard of Mr. Frick before, though I, I don't think we really mentioned him, but he's the most senior management person we've heard of. And Mr. Frick's office is quite large, and everything in it is nicer and, and more expensive than in the other offices that Forlesson has visited so far. And there is a huge group of people in here with Frick, though Forlesson doesn't see any of them as individuals. This might you know, be part of this, this problem of being able to distinguish one person from another in this environment. Frick himself, though, is an old bald man, and when he greets for a lesson, he tells him that he was just reading his file and noticed that they'd been in grade school together. And at first he hadn't believed it, but now that they're meeting in the flesh, he actually remembers playing prisoner's base with him and that for a lesson was a very fast runner. And I, I guess this game, prisoner's base, I've never heard of this before, but I guess it's like kick the can or ghost in the graveyard. These were the games that I loved when I was a kid. And Frick goes on to say that being that they're the same age, they, they must have started at the company at the same time as well. Of course, obviously, Frick rose to the top and for lesson stayed at the bottom. And Frick says, I suppose you envy me, but let me tell you, I envy you. It's lonely at the top. The work is hard and you can never set down the responsibility for a minute. You won't believe it, but you've had the best of it. And, and to this, for listen, simply says, I don't. Right? I don't believe it. And I have to say that being able to leave early to play golf does not sound like what Frick has just described. So I don't believe it either. But at this point, Frick raises his voice to address the entire group that's gathered here in his office. And it turns out that this is a type of service appreciation ceremony and Forlesson is getting a watch from the company. And people laugh at Forlesson's joke when he gets the watch, but then they all just slink off. No one personally talks to Forlesson or wishes him well or congratulates him. And Frick then tells Forlesson that, you know, he can take the rest of the day off. There's not much left of it anyway. And... So now, at this point, we've only got one scene left in this story. Yeah, this is very clearly a retirement party for, for a lesson. There's no point in him hanging around till the end of the day. Uh, he hasn't really done anything. That's obvious. So why keep him around till he dies at the office? He doesn't want to be buried there. Might as well send him home early. We, we also really need to point out here that Frick has a gold tooth and a mole over his eyebrow. And, and he is the person that for a lesson saw earlier in the day, in the morning, and he wasn't sure if he's looking at himself or not. And, you know, this is a, a bald man with glasses, a little on the heavier set side. All these four lessons kind of maybe look like Gene Wolfe at this age on some level. And th th that makes the story even sadder if he's writing himself into the story in that way. But we'll leave these observations uh, to our discussion episode. 
Okay, so we are almost home here. So on his way across the parking lot, Forlesson observes a, a young romantic couple arriving at work, and he imagines what their days will be like, how they'll meet for lunch, and how that will be a little bit awkward because they're at work, and all the sorts of things that young people are going to get up to when they're carrying on a romance. And on the way home, he notices that orange and black machines are eating some of the houses. Uh, So there's some more change here at the end of the day. And when he gets home, there's a small man in a dark suit sitting outside his door. But this man doesn't say anything when Forlesson speaks to him. And so Forlesson just goes inside. And here he's greeted by a tall young man. Uh, This is Forlesson's son, whom we've never seen before, and whom Forlesson never has seen either, actually. So he's just sort of surmised that that's who this is, that this man is his son. And the deal is that his son has gotten a coffin for Forlesson, and he wants him to try it out to make sure it fits. This is morbid, and Forlesson says that he'd really just like to see his wife right now, but his son says that she's busy. You know how women are. And then he changes the story, actually, and says that really she just doesn't want to come until it is all over. And I guess it here means for Lesson's death now that he's at the end of his day, his life that takes only the span of a single day. And there's some physical comedy here as the son wrestles his father into the coffin. And then for Lesson says that actually it's quite comfortable. There's not much padding, but the firmness of the coffin is pretty good for his back. And now his son asks what type of explainer he wants for the end of his life, and Forlesson doesn't know what that means, and his son scolds him for not having read the orientation material when he woke up, but everyone gets someone to explain things to them at the end of their life, and, and there's a menu that you can choose from, and uh, this is a lot of fun. So let's, let's run through the, the list of types of explainers that you can get. There's a doctor, there's a priest, you can get a philosopher, you can get a, a theologian, you can get an actor or a warlock, there's a national hero, there's an aged lore master, and then the the final option is a novelist. And now the small man comes in from outside, and it, it turns out that he's the explainer, and he can take on the role of any of these options. Forlesson doesn't know which one he wants, but he does wish that he could talk to his wife at this moment. But the explainer says that she's dead, her, her body's in the next room, And his son just doesn't want to tell him that his wife has already died, that his wife has died while he's been at work. And the explainer here pressures for lesson into choosing something, though it does turn out that he also can choose no explanation. He can choose nothing here. And to this, for lesson indicates that he wants to feel that the coffin is a bed. And yet at the same time, he wants to feel that it's a ship that will set him free. And then he just trails off and says, and yet it's been a strange life. But the explainer isn't really interested in this, and so he just gives Forlesson a a sample of the explanations he can receive, and I'll just read what he says, since we're going to spend probably a a lot of time on this in the discussion episode. So this is what the explainer says. You may have been oppressed by demons, or revived by unseen aliens who, landing on the earth eons after the death of the last man, have sought to recreate the life of the 20th century. Where it may be that there's a small pressure exerted by a tumor in your brain. But in the end, Forlesson just says that he wants to know if it's meant anything, if what he has suffered has been worth it. And the explainer says, no, yes, no, yes, yes, no, yes, yes, maybe. And that's the end of the story. That's the last line. Maybe the suffering has been worth it, but maybe not. That's certainly the ambiguity at the end of the story, as is, as is typical in Wolf. And, and, and we'll definitely be digging into each of the explainer's reasons for existence or, or suffering, as you said, in our discussion. 
But one thing I do want to point out is that each of these answers at the end corresponds to the type of explainer that for lesson could have gotten for the end of his life. So, or maybe for his next life, if the red book is really any, any help to us in this story at all, but we could also read the end of the story as the explainer, ignoring the questions of whether or not life has been worth it and answering the questions of what type of explainer would be best for, for a lesson. So it would be no to the doctor. Yes. To the priest, no to the philosopher, Yes to the theologian, yes to the actor, no to the warlock, yes to the national hero, yes to the aged lore master, and maybe for the novelist. And this is kind of bizarre because I wonder if there's a connection also between the explainer and Forlesson himself. If this this is something, these are roles he could have had in life or could have in the next life. But this last bit about the novelist connects Forlesson to Wolf in a strange way because Operation Ares was a failure in Wolf's mind and by all accounts in the publishing world. And Peace hasn't been published yet, though it's probably been written. And those are the only two novels he's written at this point. So we could maybe see Wolf dealing with his own uncertainty about his path in life and comparing himself maybe to what he could have been in the type of office job that he has or whatever he's doing at this point for work. But if we get deeper into this at this point, we'll be getting into our discussion, which we'll save for the next episode. But the ending is certainly among the more ambiguous endings that Wolf has ever written. Yeah, we're going to have a lot of puzzles and mysteries type of conversations to have in the discussion episode. But there's also a massive amount of material here for the, the themes and motifs. This is a cutting and biting story. It's heartbreaking. There is so much going on. I can't wait till we get to the discussion episode. But that is not this episode. So that's going to do it for this one. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and our other creative projects, as always, at claytemplemedia.com. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums and let us know what you thought of the final section of For a Lesson. And thanks again to everyone who's been shouting into the internet ether about us. And if this is the only show of ours that you're listening to, we would really love it if you'd check in on Elder Sign, Lower Decks, and hanging out with the Dream King. Next time, we'll be back with that discussion of For Lesson, themes and motifs, puzzles and mysteries, eh, probably even some fan fiction ideas. We really can't help ourselves there. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>